Well, if you've been at Melanie Park Church for very long, as evidenced by this morning, I can be a little teary at times. But I'll have you know, it's not just Sunday morning. I can uh, shed a tear at some of the sappiest TV commercials on TV, so it happens. I've even been known to uh, cry when, my, when I was a third base coach, watching my son get a hit in baseball. It's kind of just who I am, right? As I've told some of you before, there are times that I hate this part of who I am. I want to be in control. I want to be perceived as somebody who's strong and immovable. But the fact of the matter is, God gave me a soft heart. It's who I am. So whether I like it or not, I have to learn to live with it. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe there's a part of that that's true for you as well. Where even the most stoic can show signs of a soft heart. Because in God's economy, there are just things that should break our heart. It's part of being in the new covenant community of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel explains it when he says that God has taken that heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. A heart that is sensitive to the work of the Spirit. God's redemption creates a soft heart. And so there's such a thing as godly grief. So here's the question we're going to consider together this morning. What makes you weep? What makes you weep? What grabs a hold of your heart? And I think this is important because God often uses grief to bring us to our knees. It's where we seek Him for things that are wrong in this world. Otherwise, when that's not our heart, our heart can grow hard. And instead of being soft, we become hateful. Hatred springs forth in the absence of grief. And if we're not careful, the church can be known as a people with rocks in their hands. Kind of like when the woman was caught in adultery, like those men were asking Jesus, what are you going to do with people like that? When we need to hear him say the very same thing I did with a person like you. Right alongside of hatred is indifference. In fact, Tim Keller says that uh, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. It's not caring enough to be involved at all. And with that, if that ever becomes true of this or any church, we've completely lost sight of our mission. Our mission is to be involved. Our mission is to care. In the absence of godly grief, our heart can grow hard or our heart can grow cold or we lose sight of God's kingdom purpose in our life. So let me ask you again, what makes you weep? Godly grief is a sign of a soft heart where our heart is moved with things that move the heart of God. That should be true of all of us. And that's what we're going to consider together this morning. So before we look at God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I just pray this morning that we would have soft hearts, that we would have hearts that are sensitive to the work of your spirit, to the power of your word, 
through the love of your people that would speak to us in a way that changes how we live. We're grateful that you love us just the way we are, but you don't want us to stay that way. You began a good work, and you want to continue to perfect that work in our life until the day when you come and all things are made perfect. So until that day, including this day, would you shape our heart to be more like yours? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our central passage this morning is going to be at the end of 1 Samuel. Verse chapter 31 in the beginning of 2 Samuel. But before we get there, there's some really important events that I think we need to consider to, to set the stage. If you remember at the end of chapter 26, where we kind of left off last, uh, Saul and David parted ways. And when they did so, I made the point that that's the last time that they will ever see each other face to face. But when they parted ways, they really went on parallel paths. Both Saul and David set out on godless pursuits. Both Saul and David set out on godless pursuits. The very first verse of chapter 27 says that, Then David said to himself, or in the original language in Hebrew, it literally says, Then David said to his heart. We'll turn to chapter 27, verse 1, and let's look at what he said to his heart. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. You see, David thought about it long enough that he said to his heart, the only safe place for me is in enemy territory. <laughs> now, we all know, I hope, we all know that this is in no way consistent with the experience that he's had thus far. God has faithfully protected David in the midst of Saul's pursuits. David is perfectly safe. In God's sovereign care. But that's not where David set his mind. Instead, he kept thinking about all the ways that Saul could possibly set a trap. Could possibly take his life to the point that he says, I will surely perish one day at the hand of Saul. You see, the focus of our mind is what guides our steps passage in Proverbs chapter 14 that says there is a way which seems right to man. That's the path that David has chosen to take, a path that seems right to him. It is a godless pursuit because David did not consider God's faithful provision. David did not ask God's direction on the steps that he should take. It is a godless pursuit. David set his mind on what could happen instead of what God has already done. David seeking refuge with the enemy instead of putting his trust in the Lord. Now you'll remember, Gath is the place where David has already been to once. And he had to pretend to be insane in order to escape. 
Remember, Gath is the hometown of Goliath, the giant that David killed in battle. And yet somehow David has convinced himself that this is the safest place on earth for him to be. And by all accounts, as you follow the story, it seems to be working out pretty good. David becomes good friends with Achish, the king of Gath. Achish gives David and his men their own land, their own territory, a place called Ziklag. And they set up their own community and make a place to live. Over the next year and a half, David uses this as kind of a a home base as he goes out on military pursuits. What he'll do is he'll attack armies that are attacking the Philistines. But these people also happen to be enemies of Israel. So he's kind of killing two birds with one stone. This endears him to Achish as a loyal subject of the Philistines while also allowing him to protect the people of God as well. So, maybe David's plan wasn't so bad after all. But the other part of that proverb goes on to say, there is a way that seems right in the eyes of men, but in the end, it leads to death. Don't forget, the Philistines are sworn enemies of the people of Israel. And it's only a matter of time before they turn their swords towards them. And then what's David going to do? He can't ride the fence of compromise forever. That's about to happen. Turn over to chapter 28, verse 1. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war. Who are they going to go to war against? To fight Israel. And Achish said to David, Know surely that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. (laughs) Oh no. David has just been caught in the trap of his own compromise. He's on a path that leads to death. In this case, the death of his own people by his own sword. The people that he has committed himself to protect, he's now on a path to kill. He's on a path that leads to death. So here's David marching in the ranks of the Philistine army on a path to destroy the armies of Israel. Meanwhile, Saul is in a panic. Look down at verse 4 of chapter 28. Now the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets because there's none left. Then Saul said to the servants, seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium or a witch in Endor. So now we're introduced to Saul's godless pursuit. This is almost an identical scene to what we saw back in chapter 13. If you'll remember, the same scenario was taking place. The Israel army is camped out. They're looking over at the massive army of the Philistines. Everybody's in a panic. And at that time, Samuel was alive. Samuel had told Saul, don't do anything until I get there and offer 
a sacrifice. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Well, Samuel's not arriving in time for Saul, and his men are starting to panic, and he can't wait any longer. He gets impatient. He says, give me the sacrifice. I'll take care of it so we can just get on with this. And it didn't end well. Very same thing is happening here. Here he is, camped out, looking at the massive army of the Philistines. He's starting to panic. He's praying. God doesn't answer his prayer, and he says, well, I'll find someone who will. In, in a mo- most bizarre account, Saul finds a witch in Endor who he asks to call upon the spirit of Samuel, who is dead at this time. Well, she complies, and lo and behold, Samuel appears before Saul. Gary Morris mentioned this last week in his ABF, and I believe he's right. It never says who this man is that appears but Saul immediately recognizes him. And it makes a point in the passage to highlight the fact that it was a man in a robe. And so likely Saul recognizes Samuel by his robe. Why? Because he tore that robe, you'll remember, back in chapter 13. He was uh, trying to hold Samuel back from leaving him, and he grabbed his coat, his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him in this vision the very same thing he said to him that day. And that is, God has torn the kingdom from your hands because you have not been obedient in serving him faithfully. And he will give it to your neighbor, David. He goes on in this vision to explain to Saul that not only that, you and your sons will die in battle. And the Philistines will overtake the armies of Israel. Much like David, Saul's godless pursuit is leading towards a path of death. In this case, he and his sons. You see what's happening here? These two godless pursuits are on a collision course with one another. David is marching in the Philistine army. Saul has been told that he and his sons will die by the hands of that army. But now there's a twist in the story, an unexpected turn. It's a divine rescue. God will save David from a path that leads to death. See, what happens is the generals of the Philistine army begin to look around and take account of all the thousands of men that they have gathered together to to face the Israel army, which is much smaller by comparison. And as they're looking at this vast number of men, they begin to recognize, wait a second, there's David. And so they ask, Achish, what's this all about? Why is he here? And Achish tries to convince them, oh, he's proven to be a loyal subject. It's good. He's with us. And they're not so sure. He said, you do realize that's David who killed our greatest warrior. You do realize that's David of whom they sing songs. That Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. You do realize that those ten thousands included many of us as the Philistines. This is not going to work. And so they dismiss him. And Achish says to David, Go in peace. Return to your home. God rescued David from the sin of his own hand. Even though he is completely accountable 
to those sinful choices, God gave him grace. He didn't deserve it, but God rescued him, and he gave him grace. But clearly, there are things that David still has to learn, and that will become clear when he returns home. Go to chapter 30, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day after having been released from the Philistine army, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters had all been taken captive. You see, by not consulting God, David put all of his people in harm's way, including his own family. What seemed like a plan that was working out just fine has now become a disaster. David's godless pursuit brought tragedy on his people. By not trusting in the Lord's protection, he became a victim of the enemy's hand. But I believe that in this encounter, David understands what he's done wrong. I believe that because of what it says in verse 6. Look at that with me. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring for me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and you shall surely rescue do you see what's happening here David's family has been captive held captive David's men have stone in their hands and they're ready to kill him for what he's done to put them in harm's way but David does not react in an effort to save his own skin like he's done in the past He doesn't make any assumptions about what he thinks God might want him to do. This is his own family. But he refuses to do anything without first seeking the Lord. You see, David got them into this mess by going on his own path. And he understands in this moment that the only way he gets out is if the Lord is leading the way. And so he asks the Lord for direction. And the Lord gives him the green light to go and rescue your family and all those who are with them. So there are two fierce battles that are about to take place at the exact same time. You have Saul and the armies of Israel that will be in conflict with the Philistines. And at the very same time, you have David and his men in conflict with the Amalekites to rescue their families. Turn over to chapter 31 and read with me beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. 
And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle was heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So he took his sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw what Saul had done and that he was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. This is a sad day. Everything happened just as Samuel said it would. The Philistines overpowered the armies of Israel. And in that melee, Jonathan and his two brothers were killed in battle. And Saul was badly wounded and didn't want to become sport for the Philistines. And so he asked his armor bearer to take his life. But he refused because he was afraid. I believe afraid to take the life of the Lord's anointed. And so Saul kills himself only to be followed by the armor-bearer who does the very same thing. It is a most tragic day in the history of Israel. Mount Gilboa is littered with dead bodies, including their king and his sons. The stench of death has filled the air. And now the arrogance of the Philistines will be put on display. Look down at verse 8. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to a strip, uh, the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his weapons, sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshine. Israel's king and his sons were ridiculed. Their dead bodies decapitated and then impaled onto the city wall of the Philistines. And then they sent messengers to all the pagan worship sites throughout the territories of the Philistines. Guess what the message was? Our God's won. Our God's won. Their king is dead. Their sons are dead. And their God has been mocked. Israel is like sheep without a shepherd. They are literally scattering in a thousand different directions as the Philistines continue to make their move. Now, remember, there's another another battle going on at the same time as well, right? David and his men against the Amalekites. And David knows, and it has been fulfilled, that he would overcome the Amalekites, which he does, and rescues all of the families alive. You see, David put his trust in the Lord as he should have done all along because God was faithful as he's always been. And, but David, now that he's at home, begins to wonder about what he knows is taking place at Mount Geboa. What about his brothers and sisters in the armies of Israel? We'll turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And listen to the report that David receives about that battle. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul, 
with, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan and his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And he looked behind him, and he said, and he saw me, and he called me, and he said, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please, stand beside me and kill me, for the agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I knew that he could not live after uh, after he had fallen. And I took the crown from which was on his head and the bracelets which were on his arm. And I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Now, as a reader, we hear that account and it's confusing (laughs) because it doesn't match, does it? What he says does not match with what the narrator says happened at the end of 1 Samuel. It's something that's confusing. The Amalekite sure looks the part, though. I mean, it says that his clothes are torn, his face is covered with dirt, and these are all cultural signs of grief and distress. And he's holding the king's crown, so obviously he's been there. But there's something that's not right about his story. Because he's describing this scene in the midst of the battle. But in this scene, with everything that's going on, the king is completely alone. No armor bearer. No bodyguard. No soldiers who stand beside him. Just a humble little Amalekite who assisted him with the dignity of his death. Who then walks away with the most prized possession of that battle the crown of the king. So David probes a little deeper. Look down at verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, well, I'm a son of an alien, an Amalekite. That's interesting. Then David said to him, how is it that you're not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your head. For your mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David knew something wasn't right. Keep in mind, David has just gotten out of battle with who? The Amalekites. So they're not exactly favorable friends to the Israelites. They're not necessarily trustworthy. And it was just too easy for this man to describe this scene who just happened to be there and then casually takes the life of God's anointed as if he was doing him a favor. See, David had plenty of opportunities to do the same. And he refused to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed. 
it was way too easy for this man. And I believe David knew he was lying. Because he tells him, your mouth testifies against you. I think the Amalekite is deceptively manipulating to gain honor in David's rule because he assumes that when he hands him the crown that David is going to use the opportunity to force himself into the place of ruler over the Israelites. But that's not how it works. Before this situation happens as it's described here, I want you to see the response of David and his men in terms of the news that they'd received about the Israelites. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also said, uh, so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned. And they wept. And they fasted until evening for Saul and his son, Jonathan, for the people of the Lord, the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. If you look at verse 17, you'll see that David turns his sorrow into a song. Not only that, he commands that all of the house of Judah learn this song by heart. But I want you to think about this for a minute. David is weeping over a man who tried to take his life. Saul. I mean, Jonathan we can understand, right? Jonathan was a trustworthy, faithful friend. But David, it says, is mourning the loss of Saul and of Jonathan and of all the people of Israel. David wasn't relieved. He didn't rejoice in their demise. He says they mourned. They wept. They prayed. Now I want to transition from here to the question I asked you this morning. What makes you weep? What makes you weep? David wept over the death of Saul, the death of Jonathan, the death of all of God's people. He didn't just mourn for his friend. He mourned for his adversary. He didn't just mourn for those he knew. He mourned for those he had never even met. His grief extended to all the house of Israel. So if you look closely, David's grief has less to do with who they are than whose they are. David's grief has less to do with who they are and more to do with whose they are. These are the people of God set apart as a light unto the nations. Their lives are directly tied to God's name. David's heart was grieved with what grieves the heart of God. See, I think this is a concept that we are desperately missing in the church today. We can be so busy managing our individual lives that we lose sight of the world around us. We can be so focused on personal success that we lose sight of God's kingdom plan. This morning I mentioned that verse in Judges that talked about where every man does what was right in their own eyes. And historically when I've read that I've always kind of had in this mind they're just living their sinful ways. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think probably even more important was the fact that they had lost sight of their identity as God's people. Their collective responsibility. 
instead of living life as a nation set apart, they just did their own thing. But let me remind us all. The church is the communion of saints. We are the people of God. And our lives are directly tied to his name. And our hearts should be grieved with what grieves the heart of God. And any time the enemy gets a stronghold, we should weep. Whether that stronghold is divorce, or racism, or abortion, or apathy. You know what we need? We need what we talked about this morning. We need a new generation who lives not for themselves, but for the sake of the gospel. A people whose hearts are grieved with what grieves the heart of God. A people who truly believe that our life is not our own, that we belong to Christ, and that Jesus Christ is our only hope. That's what we need. If you think about it, you and I were just like David. We were on a path towards death by our own doing. We were choosing to sin and accountable to those sinful choices. And yet, even while we were dead in our sin, God rescued us. David didn't deserve it, and neither did you and I. It is a divine rescue. By grace, we have been saved through faith. So what do we do? Our own thing from here? Or do we owe our lives to the one who rescued us? See, in the absence of godly grief, our heart grows hard and our heart grows cold. We stand in judgment or we turn away with indifference. But either way, we lose sight of who God's called us to be as his people. God's heart desires for us to be moved by the things that moves him. He gave us a soft heart. He turned it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that we would be sensitive to his touch in our life as he leads us in ways that fulfill his kingdom purposes on earth. And I think our greatest danger in our world today is what we see in Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not necessarily because we're all going to go into sinful paths, but because we all go in our own paths and forget our collective responsibility as a people of God, set apart for the purposes of God, in the name of the kingdom of God, until he comes again. That's the only reason we're here. So let me encourage you, as I did this morning, would you please be earnest in your prayers for a new generation to join with the existing generations as a people of God who live for the purposes of God. And let me tell you something. I'll be honest with you. It's going to require sacrifices, which is why most people aren't interested. Because I'll tell you this, you cannot add something onto what you're already doing. Okay? I know the lives you live. I know the life I live. You can't add something. To be faithful in following Christ, the chances are you will be required to sacrifice something on his behalf. It's the question of whether we're willing to do that or not. And that's the one we need to answer.
So let's just pray together that we would be faithful to do what God has called us all to do, whatever that may be. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we ask together as your people in this body to see the world through your eyes. Lord, help us understand what it means to have a collective response as God's people. We know there's not a person in this room that would not agree with the fact that we are in deep need of a spiritual revival in the world in which we live. And maybe that revival needs to begin right in the hearts of your very own people. Give us an understanding of what it means to be set apart as a people of God, to have a collective identity where we have a shared responsibility, where we assemble as one man and our hearts are moved with the things that move the heart of God. Lord, in fact, would you please break our hearts with what breaks yours? Teach us what it means to be faithful. We pray this in the name of our Savior who rescued us from sin. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.